Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Laura Jane Peterson is a civil rights activist and community organizer who has been a sales director with the demonstrative history of growing account revenue, clients, and sales. She has the ability to imagine it and then makes it happen. Since October 2020, this innovator became the founder of Say Their Names LA, which is an established network of support, mutual aid, and resources for families whose loved ones were killed by police violence in LA. Laura identifies as an abolitionist, activist, vegan, explorer, and empath. Welcome, Laura Jane Peterson. All right, Laura, it's such a pleasure. So first of all, Laura, I heard about you through Jolly Good Ginger, my buddy. Yes. Um, <laughs> Jolly, you- I actually just saw Jolly on Saturday. Oh, did you? What, what event were you at? Yes, we went to the March for Our Lives. Oh, you were indeed. Oh, excellent. Yeah. yeah, I got to spend some time with him out there. Yeah, he's a good dude. You first met him at the event in L.A., right? Yes, we hosted an event at the Bourbon Room. We partnered with Families United, which is Jolly's organization, in addition to Always for the People, which is founded by Senate. And then we were Say Their Names LA. And we had about 50 50 to 60 families there who all got to meet each other. And they rotated around. It was was similar to a speed dating, but it was speed meeting. And they got to rotate around. And this was actually a really great idea that one of the families that we work with, the family of David Sullivan and I came up with over dinner and over lunch, actually. Yes. And then we had a meeting with other impacted families from Say Their Names LA. And we came up with the different prompts and everything. So it really was impacted families had a role to play in this event. It's a really collaborative event, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we started with everybody had five minutes and it very quickly became apparent that they needed more than that. So we switched Mm -hmm. it to 15 minutes, but it was really beautiful looking around the room and seeing just different people interacting and hugging and crying and laughing and really important for them to to be able to share all of that, to share their trauma, their grief, their action items, empower each other. So it was a really beautiful event. It's sad to have to bond over that, but it's also beautiful that there was an opportunity for people to, who have had similar pain to connect. Absolutely. As one of the families always says, none of us want to be here, but here we are. Yeah, yeah, it's so accurate. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to come forward a little bit to just to give an okay. idea of your journey. Okay, let's see. Your profile says that you are indigenous and Lebanese. Can you tell us what that breakdown yes. is? Yeah, so my, th- my mom's side of the family, we are indigenous, we are Mayan, we are Blackfoot, we're Puebloan. So I have a mixture of different Native American indigenous tribes that make up my mom's side of the family. We say that we're Mexican, but it was when when America was Mexico before it is now a modern day America. And then my father is from Lebanon. Okay. And actually there's a significant amount of Lebanese people in Mexico as well. Salma Hayek is Mexican and Lebanese, yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. I was like, I don't think I knew that. Okay, yeah. Cool. yeah. So. Then you went to, I'm going to skip over a little bit. You went mm-hmm. to the prestigious Marlboro School. 
I did go to Marlboro. Sure, they're the ones who rejected my application when I applied. Oh. California. <laughs> and then, what grades did you go there? I went there from seventh grade to twelfth grade. Okay, you did the whole stint. I did the whole thing, the whole all girls school. Yep. Yeah, I actually was yeah. working in an all girls school in Connecticut, and I was yeah, I was going to Greenwich Academy, and I was heading out west, and I applied to Marlboro, I'm coming from girls school, being a counselor. Yeah. I thought it was a good look. Yeah, they didn't think so. I didn't even get an uh. interview. <laughs> Oh, Marlboro. (laughs) Shame on you, right? Shame on Marlboro. Okay, so then you chose. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Then you chose to go to the American University of Paris. So why do you think you made the choices you made and how has it led you on your path? I've been very fortunate. My father, he was a yacht designer for this thing called the America's Cup. And he traveled or he lived abroad often. So I got to live with him in places like New Zealand. I got to live with him in Italy. You know, I really wanted to continue learning about other cultures. So I ended up going to the American University of Paris. It was only like 15% American. So I really got to learn about Middle Eastern culture that I hadn't before. A lot of classmates were from Africa. They were from other places in Europe. There were kids from Madagascar, from Djibouti, you know, all over the world. And it was really important for me to immerse myself in this really diverse environment that I saw that was lacking in American universities. Especially coming from Marlboro, that must have been a bit of a shock. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think like one friend and I we made up like one Mexican in our class and I'm like how we live in Southern California and I'm half, you know, what I indigenous, but Mexican and she's half Mexican. And here we are the one Mexican of our grade. I didn't understand. That's so unbelievable. And I just saw recently that they have this whole diversity and inclusion. So I wonder if they've been able to make a mark on that. I think eventually I'm going to have to get in there and start really really seeing what's going on, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they need your influence. But that's an amazing opportunity to go from the experience of being at a school where you are literally the minority and then being in this diverse environment. How do you think that's informed your journey? I think it just, I think just learning about other cultures in general really opens your opens your eyes and your mind to having a different perspective and different point of view. I think it also makes you a little bit more sensitive and empathetic and compassionate to others and to different that sometimes I completely see lacking in American society. It's really just, and it's gotten, I don't know if it's gotten worse, but it's definitely is way more vocal than I've ever seen before. I think as we say in the community, it's just gotten video recorded and put on social media, the lack Absolutely. of the lack of awareness. It's pretty clear. It's, it's disgusting and it's really scary. It is scary. It is scary. Absolutely. So then you went from that experience, very diverse experience in another country, came back here and went into finance. (laughs) And then let's see, there's more, Laura, there's more. I think it was in 2015, you received the Wall Street Rising Star Award. Mm -hmm. Quite an accomplishment. You were reported to be the female trader to watch. I don't know why they had to say female. I don't know why that was necessary, but definitely the trader to watch. No, that was the thing, actually. It was it was women of Wall Street women. Oh, okay. And there were very few of us. I was often the only female on the trading floor. And I think that's part of the reason why I did it and why I stayed in that industry for so long is because I, wa- I, I was a female and I was not white. Right. So I wanted to 
do something. I wanted to prove that it, it we could do something different or that others could be in this Wall right. Street club. And honestly, I think that's the only reason why we we're chosen because there really <laughs> are not that many female traders. But I will definitely take that as a yeah, badge of honor. <laughs> for sure. Thank you for sure. And yeah. now, now I read in the article that you spent after that, you left that, and then you spent a period of time reflecting, working on yourself. And this is so impressive. You learn not to numb your feelings anymore and stop yeah. scrolling. You learn to sit in your feelings. Now, I have yeah. to tell you, as a therapist and a friend, I must say that a million times to people. So will you offer the catalyst for you being able to engage in this process? I, my father passed away. I'm sorry to hear um, that. I was caretaking for him for 18, 18 months and my father passed away in 2017. And I realized when I found out that my dad had cancer, I just was a mess. I actually locked myself in my closet for many hours and just cried and felt everything, just allowed every feeling to come up. Mm-hmm. And then it was almost like, okay, let's go take care of, let's go take care of dad now. And I was able to really show up for him throughout this process. But every time a feeling came up, I would just be like, okay, we're going to sit with this feeling and we're going to feel it. And I realized through that process that how important it is to feel your feelings. Whoa. There had been times in my past where I hadn't, I had kept numbing myself and then it would come out in a panic attack. I kind of was able to see the difference in the ways that I, that I was using my feelings really. And I, for me, it's really important to try anything. So I will try different experiments to see what works for me. We are all very different. So I think it is important to just see what works for you and what doesn't. That was really just my journey with feeling my feelings. And I realized that it actually worked in a lot of other ways, especially with this movement space. It is a really heavy space. And I think it's important for me, at least, to really sit with all the feelings so that I can continue to, to be active in the space. So did you have any guidance when you did that? Or you just knew to do that on your own? Cause that's pretty incredible. No, at the time it was just something that I felt like I had to do. I felt like I needed to go in my closet and I just needed to feel everything. But no, we, I didn't have any guidance at the time. And then I started reading all of this stuff, Brene Brown, woo, and, and I was like, oh, this is a thing. Awesome. This yeah. is a thing. And it's got to come from your culture. I'm thinking the indigenous part of your family. I'm not, I don't know enough about the Lebanese culture to say that, but I'm sure the indigenous part of your culture led that Absolutely. journey. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. powerful. That's very powerful. Yeah. yeah. So now, let's see. At one point, you did what we always want people to do. You actually did research. You came out of this place, this self-discovery, if you will, and then you actually did research. You did the research to understand the depths of white supremacy and racism in this country. You focused on the murder at the hands of the police specifically. Yeah. How did you, when you started doing the research, what was the catalyst that leaned you in that direction? It's wild. While we were all quarantining, it was a couple of days actually before George Floyd and the police were attacking some people here in, I think it was in New York, which I'm actually in New York right now. And I was so angry and I was like, okay, we're going to sit with these feelings. I'm going to be angry. I grew up in LA. I was there during the riots. I was there during Rodney King. I know the police, so I know how they act. I'm very aware of it. But I think in this process of being able to feel my feelings, 
I was so mad. And my mom was with me and I was like, I'm so mad. And she was like, okay, do something. And I was like, okay, okay, mom. (laughs) All right, let me go do something. That kind of sparked me into starting to do my research and seeing who to reach out to. And then George Floyd. And I was out in the streets protesting every day since George Floyd for months, almost probably all of 2020, the rest of 2020, and just trying to learn as much information as I could. Did you have any close friends who had any experiences with the police? I know you said something about your stepfather, Um, which I thought was an interesting comparison. I have had close friends who have had encounters with the police. Absolutely. None of them had been killed by the police. Yeah, but definitely been harassed and definitely have been targeted for sure. Absolutely. You bring up something that's really important, the connection between feelings and purpose. I have this belief that people in large part, the reason why white America can separate themselves from the experience that is clearly before their eyes is because they have the privilege to not feel. Absolutely. The pain. And what you did was the opposite of that, you delved into the pain and that's what gave you purpose. And that's what I try to get people to understand is it impacts you as well. It impacts white bodies as well. But if you choose not to feel the pain, you get to escape. Absolutely. It's every time that something happens and people turn a blind eye, that doesn't mean that it goes away. It's going to continue to happen. These things are going to continue to happen until, as my mom said, we do something. Right. We have to continue to do it. I don't know. I love Dr. Thema. Mm-hmm. That's her name. And she said, I want to learn ways of interrupting, eradicating and addressing the realities of racism and oppression. We have to be able to impact and find our voice. And working against racism is really working towards mental health anyway. That's absolutely it's why we connect them. That's why we connect them on this show, because that's absolutely. what it's about. It's like people don't that. realize people don't realize the impact to your mental health when you turn away and don't notice something that's impacting people. So I love that. I'm glad you shared that. Because it still is going to impact you Mm. regardless if it's happening directly to you or not. And the difference with racism and the system of oppression is that healing happens after something has happened. This is continual. This is continuing to happen. We have to really take that into account of how this is affecting everybody on a much larger scale. I appreciate that so much. Now you have a belief or you had a belief. I don't know if it's still true. And I'm curious that if police knew how to diffuse situations, that if they had more training and knew how to diffuse situations, they'd avoid killing people. Do you still believe that police education and training is the way to go in America? No, (laughs) I don't. I know not. No, I'm an abolitionist. My organization is we're all abolitionists. We're an abolitionist organization. And we do not. Honestly, we don't believe that police can do that. They don't need more training. They've had more training. Reform doesn't work. We know that they know how to deescalate certain situations when it's a white person. But when it's not. Right. They don't use those skills, quote unquote, they, exactly. They do the opposite. So it's not about training and it's not about deescalating. We've seen it. Right. Too clearly too. And it's so obvious now back in the day, maybe it was a little bit more secretive. I feel like we're back in the times of the KKK. It's so obvious the difference between how people are treated. How can you possibly say it's because a person ran or a person was scared and didn't it's- respond? 
It's so clear. These shootings of people in the back, these shootings of people who are scared. Of course, they're scared. Thousands of people are getting killed per year by the police. That is, of course, they're scared. And if they're not getting killed, they're getting harassed and beaten. And it's just, it's ridiculous. No, I don't believe that the police (laughs) are. That's gone. Yeah, swipe that out. That is definitely gone. We're learning out here. Yeah. It's, look, it's an evolution. You, you have to learn. You have to learn what you believed and then unlearn that and apply something else. And absolutely. The history of police in America is such that it's built on tenets of racism and white supremacy. Why should we think that wouldn't be applied absolutely. in the structure of power? I just I'm. Do you have any idea how that's still a mystery to people? You think it's chosen? I think people hold so dearly to this idea of what security is, what safety is. When we talk to these families, when something happens, when there's an officer involved shooting, what the media reports a story that is is almost fabricated. It doesn't tell who the person is. It'll be like homeless, shirtless man. And it just really dehumanizes them and they will do anything to justify their shooting. So there is this stigma around, you know, their loved ones, the impact of families, loved ones, that they did something wrong. But the reality is who did something wrong are the sheriffs, the police, and this whole damn system. <laughs> so if you're just going off of what the media says and you're not doing your own research, then maybe you might believe that the police are actually doing their job. But right. their job is not to kill people. Even when a person does a crime, the job of the police, the job description does not say kill the person who did the crime. Exactly. It does not say. And honestly, the description is to protect and serve. Like the crime is what stealing. Okay. So why do there need to be guns involved? I just, it's very, yeah, it's infuriating. (laughs) And it's also mind blowing that people don't see it or choose not to see it. Because yeah. it is so obvious. So it's, obvious. So we're going to go to the development of your organization. So in October 2020, you organized more than 300 people to act out a die-in. You were yes. identified as a person who carried the self-assurance of one who knew they were supposed to be there, like no. where you were supposed to be. Does that feel accurate? And talk about how this project came to fruition. So we were protesting for Dijon Kizzy. He was going the wrong way on his bike in South Central LA and the sheriff stopped him and he ran away and they shot him. And so we were out protesting the sheriff's department for a week and they were, we came with our posters and our signs and chanting and they would shoot rubber bullets at us and tear gas. And I remember I had a mask on, a goggles on and I was running and I was like oh my gosh like nobody cares this is happening and nobody cares I was like I want to try something different so I came up with this idea to do a graveyard a tombstone build tombstones for all of the people that have been killed under the district attorney Jackie Lacey who was the last district attorney and she had not prosecuted any officers except for so I made a call on Instagram. Hey, can anybody want to help with an art project? 
And we had a huge number of volunteers. We had about 100 volunteers and they helped build the tombstones. They helped find pictures of the people for the tombstones. They helped find information about them. We had people who were reaching out to families. And so we, we created this huge graveyard and we invited all of the families to come and speak. And it was a really beautiful, impactful event because I think it is something about seeing that number. We can say 600 plus, but it is something about seeing how many people are there and having that visual representation. That is so powerful. When I saw the Mm -hmm. pictures, yeah, just overwhelming. It's overwhelming to see. How did you feel afterwards? Did you feel like it was an accomplishment? Yeah, I felt very tired. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I felt God. very tired. And I said, I'm never again, I'm not doing any other event. I had never done an event before I was I was not an, I'm not an artist. Mm. So it was a very unique thing for me to do. But it really inspired the organization that we now have. And it was really great. Because after we had families reach out and say, okay, what's the next? What are we doing next? Oh. We should, when it became very clear that at that time, the families really were connecting with each other. It was really a beautiful event to see the families bonding. And I think that is what led us to the organization. Oh, that makes so much sense. Okay. So let's talk about the organization. Bed, you explain what it is. Okay. So We are truly family-led. We're a family-led network of support and mutual aid for people affected by state-sanctioned violence. So in our organization, impacted families really are the ones leading the fight for social justice and pushing forth the movement. So they're the frontliners, really. And with Say Their Names LA, we just have built a community for them. They're the ones initiating all the ideas, but we as volunteers and supporters help implement their ideas and pull from our own resources. So what's the base organization as well? Say their names LA. So we are just a family-led network for impacted families. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That's awesome. Okay. So now when families, God forbid, it's growing, unfortunately it's growing. Absolutely. So, So families seek you out or how do you find them? How does that work? So it really is both ways. We often try to offer support to families. We try to reach out to them, but oftentimes now we're having families come, come and approach us. Okay. And so what are the types of, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, and that is a really interesting question because for us, it really is about meeting the families where they are. So uh, some of the families might have different ideas on the police, or they might be in different places in regards to their grief. So it really is important for us to be able to take those newer families and introduce them to some of the other families because they can then bond and talk. Ones that have longer time can guide the newer ones, basically. It's an opportunity for mentorship, like mentoring through the mentoring them through the grief process, because it's a complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a very complicated grief. And actually, in the beginning, when we first started, we met with a grief counselor who walked us through because my father passed away, but it's completely different. I don't have the I don't have this social injustice. My father passed away from cancer. So this is a very different type of grief. In addition to the triggers, in addition to a lot of families are still harassed by the police. A lot of families are not able to say what happened because 
they're still pending a trial. They're not able to speak out. A lot of families, loved ones were dehumanized in the media. And again, there's still that stigma. So we really want, we really try to empower them and let them know that they're not alone and that they have support within each other and also within all of us as volunteers and help them through their journey. So are they assigned a mentor? How do they connect? No, no. We just try to build community together. We have different events. We'll help them with vigils. We'll help with court support. We'll have, we we had Thanksgiving together. We really just try to do, we're going to do a yoga in the park soon. And we really just try to do anything that is their idea, really. That's awesome. So they find a way to get together and be there for each other and then hold each other emotionally through this complicated grief. And you are the ones who help to orchestrate it with volunteerism. Yeah, exactly. That's dope. And is it just based in LA? Are you growing? What's the idea behind it? So we're just based in LA. Unfortunately, there have been almost a thousand people who have been killed in the last 10 years in just in Los Angeles alone. So we really focus on Los Angeles and really try to focus on those families there. But we have met a lot of families outside. There are a couple events that we've gone to. We went to Washington, D.C. last year for the Families United Against Police Brutality. And we brought about, I think we brought maybe 30 families or somewhere in there, 30 families out to D.C. And it was a really beautiful event. We, we were able to meet some of the other national families. A few of us went up to Sacramento to meet some of the families up there too. And I do think it is really important for national families to meet our right. LA families as well. Everybody's journey is so different, but it's the same journey. Right. Absolutely. Now, when you think about the possibilities of growing, I'm surprised people from other states haven't asked you how you started this and how they can start their own. Has, have people reached out to you? No, people have definitely asked, oh, we should make us say their names here. Yeah. And I'm like, absolutely. But oh. our focus is our LA families for right now. Yeah, yeah. I know, understand until that. We can, yeah, until we can continue. And again, we always, we just want, because it is family-led, we want to just make sure that we're doing exactly what the families want. And so, <laughs> look, one of the things that's unique about what you do is it's a, it's a period of time that's missed for people. Mm-hmm. Horrific tragedy happens and then you go to try, hopefully somebody is arrested in the murder. Yeah, hopefully. And you go to trial. Mm -hmm. If you don't go to trial, what happens to the family? So I think it's amazing this opportunity to develop a process for them. Absolutely. I think it's important that every family, like I said, every family has a different, different journey. So Mm -hmm. they, they really feel empowered to within each other to fight state sanctioned violence in a number of ways. And it is important to have a diversity of tactics against ways in which to fight this. They're not going to trial. There are other ways to uplift their loved ones and other ways to, I don't want to say seek justice because justice is having their loved one here. So other ways to fight the system. And we have families. I want to share this one story of one family who did go to court. It's the family of David Sullivan, who helped me at the lunch to come up with the five minute speed meeting idea. And they recently came out of court. And it was clear to them that the jurors wanted to point out where in policy something was justified or not justified with what the police did. And that is really complicated. Because there is a company called Lexapol, 
And it is one of the main for-profit policy creators that is utilized in 35 states across the country. Wow. So this is a multi-million dollar company that writes policies for agencies with no oversight, no input from the public. And it was founded by retired cops and lawyers who wow. represent the cops. So it's intentionally kept vague. The policy is right. kept vague. So according to one of the founders, he actually said, I don't care if you run him over with your police car. I don't care if you smack him with your baton, choke him out, tase him, bite him, shoot him. Was it objectively reasonable under the totality of the circumstances presented at the time? Like, that is ridiculous. And this is being used in 35 states. I don't even know what to say. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Yes, it's called Lexapol. It's just completely obvious that Lexapol's priorities are about eliminating police accountability. And it's not just for the police. This is also being used for incarceration and immigration agencies. Wow. So this is an example. We have the family of David Sullivan and other families have now joined to try to see what we can do about Lexapol, at least to raise awareness of it. As you were saying, while this is not something that is happening in court, this is something that we, we want to raise awareness for to fight this system. So how does something like this even get in place that it's obviously while our eyes are closed? How does it happen? I don't even understand how to explain this. Oh, Lexapol, I do not know. I am just mind blown that this is even a thing. It's just, you think that something better than this has to be in place. And it just goes to show you how this system works. The way it was designed. The way it was designed. It is working for them. It is working. Why does it take all of this to just get some justice for George Floyd? All of this. The whole world. Yeah. That's just not right. And like you said, the justice. And he'll come out, probably find a job somewhere else. And and his life will go on. Meanwhile, George Floyd's family stays in grief. His daughter doesn't get to know her father. So there is no Absolutely. justice. Absolutely. There is no justice because <clears throat> the justice is them there. Yeah. So when you talk about a creation of something like this that has no oversight, just came up, makes money, makes me think of lobbying and how lobbying works. And yeah. it also makes me think of how strong the police union is. For sure. If the NRA and the police unions are not investigated in terms of just how much they control politically, how do you even begin to reassess where the problem is if you don't look at who's paying for this? Oh, absolutely. It definitely is. And that is one of the scariest things is just looking at how, (laughs) what an uphill battle this really is. Mm. I know. It's terrifying. And how much money is there? There's a lot of money. And how it's do you, a lot of money. so what's next for you? What's next for you? And knowing it's an uphill battle, what do you say to yourself and what's next? For you? And honestly, while it is an uphill battle, we, the people, and we have the power to really do change. And I feel if we keep doing this, if we keep supporting each other, if we keep supporting the impacted families, if we keep empowering them, I really do believe that it is them that are going to get there. We have a lot of families who are involved in policy change legislation. Like we have families who have done the ban the chokehold bill. I really do believe that it is, again, their fight that is going to make a difference. I think that's powerful. The idea of empowering people who are in pain. 
Absolutely. That's, that's very powerful. That's a, it's the idea of their person didn't die in vain. There's an Absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. I think that's really powerful. That's cool. Okay. And I, and I, I do want to say also, at least in Los Angeles, I don't know about other cities. Most, I don't want to say most, but a lot of the people who have been killed by police were having a mental health crisis. Uh, that's a big so, one for me. The yes. fact that people don't recognize mental health as a thing unless they use it as a defense of a white supremacist is, is quite painful in our country. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have some we have a number of families who have turned their fight into getting more resources and getting police out of mental health services. Yeah, that's great. That's a great. And point. I think that is really important. We need to make sure that we are really careful about who we're calling when something is happening. So the family of David Ordaz Jr., he was killed while he was having a mental health crisis. We went and went through their neighborhood, knocking on doors and handing out pamphlets and saying, this is who you should call if your loved one is having a mental health crisis. This is David's story. We just want to make sure that you're aware to try not to call 911. That's a great you know? grassroots approach. to Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, the family of David Ordaz Jr., they had an event at a park with a bunch of resources from grassroots organizations, because honestly, the government and system really only serves a few. And so for us, it really is about coming together and providing each other with support and resources that the government doesn't offer. Families have to qualify for resources, but many families don't. So families have to turn to grassroots organizations and that's really what we have to do. Well, I'll add in there that they also make finding mental health pretty complicated oh. uh, for people. So people who are on state aid don't necessarily, I've had to walk many people when I worked in LA, I had to walk so many people through the process of how to get a therapist through Medi-Cal. Right. It shouldn't be that complicated. Yeah. It should be a much simpler process. Absolutely. It is very complicated. I think it's great so. that you guys provide an opportunity for education as well as resources. Now, are a lot of these places, these grassroots organizations who are providing the mental health, are they funded by the state? How do they? No, for example, Dignity Empower Now is a great organization that offers a lot of resources for families. And they, I'm not entirely sure how they are funded, but I okay. do not believe that they are funded by the state, but I'm not sure. I'll have to look into that one. Okay, but regardless, I just mean they're accessible. Yes, yes. It's not yes. necessarily going to die out because they have don't no. have the resources. So if they are funded, even better. And they have yeah. this visibility. That's not a problem. I think that's great. So can people donate to say their names? We are working on that. Okay. <laughs> we are working on that. But if you can, just follow us on Instagram. And we are definitely trying to get that up and running. When you ask what's next, that's definitely next. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. So give your social media handles. So it is Say Their Names LA on Instagram. And we are coming out with a website very shortly that will have the family's pages on it. So you can learn more about the family and how you can support and follow their justice journeys as well. It kind of so just that, it kind of just blew up for you, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you were like, go ahead. It, no, it, it is actually sad as well, though. You know, there are still people being murdered this year. And we keep having more families being added to this group, which is it's so heartbreaking but we really just want to try to provide a, pl a safe place for them. You went from, just to take a <laughs> circle, you went from being in an international college to finance <laughs> to sounding like you found your purpose 
and really <laughs> having a mission to affect change. I, I, yeah, I definitely feel right. it. And yes, and actually I just started going to, to get my master's in psychology. Oh, okay. um, awesome. Yeah, because I really did feel like, as we were talking about before, I really did feel like the trauma within racism is something that I really want to address and tackle and help just from what, you know, from the organization and working with these families, I've really seen that is something that I is lacking, right, like we right. just discussed. One of the things that's very important to me is training clinicians on how to have more of a multicultural lens, how to recognize mm-hmm. racial trauma, how to really treat trauma that's pervasive. And like you said, doesn't get an opportunity to heal because it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea that you want to go to school and make that your focus because it's not a focus in schools. It's not a focus. Yeah. It feels that way. Even with my therapist that I had been with for eight years, anytime I tried to take it there, she wouldn't. Isn't that Um, fascinating? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, wait, this is a really big component of my life. What do you mean? And it is. Injustice takes away a lot from us. It makes me sad that therapists don't not hold space for that in the way in which they should, I yeah. really give you credit for knowing to bring that up and, and insisting that it's a part of your journey and that your therapist needs to figure out, hold space for it. It's just the yeah. way it is. But a lot of people yeah. don't feel empowered to do so. I want to encourage people to really, this is something that impacts you, bring it into the therapeutic space and have a way to process it. That's, yeah. I, that's just really incredible that you knew to do that for yourself. Thank so you. on this show, it's all about highlighting change makers and talking about changing the narrative. And so I want to thank you, first of all, for sharing this space and talking about where you are, your journey and where you've been. I think it's really just so important for people to see people who look differently doing this work and feel the same passion about making it more of integrated into society as opposed to a specialized place like everybody should care like this. It shouldn't just be those of us who look like me. We should all care about this. So I really respect what you're doing and just really appreciate it. Thank Thank you you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was really uh, amazing and I feel very honored. So I really appreciate you having me here. Awesome. I like to give the guests the final word. So what do you think this country needs to do? What needs to happen next? We need to abolish the police. I think that we need to go from thinking of security or actually I'll say change the narrative of security from one of fear and Mm. policing to one of building community and love. That's powerful. And that's so true. This idea of what policing is to protect us actually doesn't go together. (laughs) There's no statistics that show policing the way it is in America impacts change. It doesn't decrease poverty, the reason for crime. It does not affect change. So I love that idea of reframing the language. So if somebody wants to be you, do what you're doing. What's your advice to them? Do it. As my mom said, do something. (laughs) Your mom kept kept it simple too. Do something. Yeah, do something. No, really just go out. Just try. Put one foot in front of the other and just try. And no goal or dream is too big. Just if you fail, you will learn and just keep using those learns and always feel your feelings. Ah, I love that. (laughs) Perfect place to end. All right, love. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. All right, I hope, Have I hope a great that, day. Hey, I hope the sun's shining for you in New York. And thank you. Uh, you have a good day too. 
Okay. Bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IAMMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.